All right, well, I've titled this session uh, Freedom to Freedom to Live. And uh, so tonight I want to start by talking about the problem that we had when we showed up on planet Earth. We had a problem. And that problem was not that we were lying and cheating and stealing hubcaps in the parking lot. The problem was that we were spiritually dead. There was a flaw in the blood. Uh, We had a bloodline issue. We had a spiritual bloodline issue. We had a location issue as well. Uh, We were in Adam and we needed to be in Christ. We looked at that this morning, what it meant to be transferred from Adam into Christ. So our geography changed, our location changed. Our bloodline, our lineage, our heritage changed. We moved from being in Adam to being in Christ. And this flaw in the blood uh, was changed forever. Uh, Romans chapter 5 says this, As sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. So this sin and death DNA This sin and death problem spread down the timeline. So the problem was that my father was born in sin, and my grandfather was born in sin, and my great-grandfather and my great-great, and it goes all the way back to Adam. And so we show up on planet Earth with a problem. So the question is, you know, how many sins does it take to become a sinner? I often ask that, you know, as I travel, how many sins does it take to become a sinner? And it only takes one, except that's dead wrong. It takes zero. You're born a sinner. And yet the most popular answer to that question shows us what we tend to believe. Why is the most popular answer one sin? It only takes one. Well, because we're used to doing in order to be. We're used to doing certain things and then getting labeled something. So if you do a bunch of sins, then now you're a sinner. If you do a bunch of righteous stuff, then now you're righteous. These are how humans tend to think. But of course, God has given us this whole upside down system where we don't do in order to be. Instead, we're finding something radically different. How many sins did it take for you to become a sinner? Zero. How many righteous acts did it take for you to become righteous? Zero. So now we're operating in a different realm. I'm not righteous by what I do. I'm righteous because of what Christ did. And if I'm righteous because of what Christ did, then how good of a job did he do? See, now I begin to look at things and I'm bragging on Jesus. How good of a a job did Jesus Christ do in making you righteous? Man, On a scale of 1 to 10, you're an 11. You're off the charts. And so we need to wake up every day and live in in this kingdom of 11-dom. You know, welcome to being an 11, off the charts righteous. The Bible says Jesus became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus became sin. He never sinned a day in his life. He became sin. You never did anything righteous in your life. You became righteousness. You see this thing, we can't can't measure it. We can't quantify it. We can't fully understand it, wrap our minds around it. But you have a rightness that is unshakable and unbreakable. And it's because of all that Jesus Christ did. 
So think of it this way. If you were to find a corpse on the side of the road, you're driving along down the highway and suddenly you notice there's a, a, a dead man laying on the side of the road next to his car. Now, as you approach this corpse, it appears that, um, you know, he's died of a heart attack. And uh, you realize that given this man's uh, weight, he's extremely overweight. And so he's got some poor eating habits, probably, that he had throughout his life. So you get an idea. You rush off to your car and you grab a diet book and you come back and you start shouting diet principles and better eating habits at this man. Now, what do you think that's going to do? That's pretty absurd, right? I'm shouting principles for life change to a dead man. You see where I'm going. How absurd it is for us to point our finger at the world and tell them they need to behave differently. The goal is not for them to behave differently. What does that man need? That man on the ground, he needs the paddles, man. He needs the the medics to come along with those paddles and put them on his chest and to have a miraculous resurrection. That's what he needs. And we spiritually, we didn't need principles. We needed a person. We didn't need religion. We needed a divine life to come in and take hold of us and live in us and his life to be infused into us, making us new. And this is what happens at salvation. The Bible says you were dead. It wasn't that you were just lying and stealing hubcaps. You may have been, but you had a deeper problem. And your deeper problem was that you were dead. Now, Colossians 2 says, when you were dead, what did God do? God made you alive. In this passage, we actually see two big aspects of the gospel. It's like a coin that has two sides to it. Uh, Yesterday we talked about one side, and today we're talking about another. One side of the coin is he forgave you of how many of your sins? All your sins. And then people freak out. Man, that's a crazy message. That is hyper grace. Well, yeah, I'm hyper about it. But it's grace upon grace upon grace upon grace is what the Bible describes it as. And yet, it's still not enough to be totally forgiven of all your sins. There's more to the gospel than being forgiven of all your sins. You flip that gospel coin, and on the other side of it, he made you alive together with him. And so the two aspects of the gospel go hand in hand. People say, boy, if, uh, if you teach that total forgiveness, you're gonna, people are going to end up setting world records for sin. Right. Seems like we're sinning just fine without this grace message. Right. You guys were all pretty good at sinning at times. Right. So what if we were to give this grace message of God, the gospel of grace, Paul calls it. What if we were to give this gospel of grace an opportunity to be two sided, not just one sided? See, the average person thinks grace is mercy and forgiveness for when you fall down. But do you realize that grace is actually an equipping so that we can stand firm? By grace, we are equipped with everything we need for life and godliness. By grace, we have Christ living in us. By grace, we get a new heart. By grace, we get a new spirit. By grace, we get a new identity. 
By grace, we are made one with Jesus Christ. So grace is not just some sort of help when we fall down, but grace is actually what enables us to say no to sin in the first place. So he says, you were dead, and God did two things. He made you alive, but not by yourself. He made you alive with Christ. Do you see that? United, one spirit with him. How close is your Jesus? You're made alive with Christ, and then he forgave you of all your sins. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. So I guess what I'm saying is this. People say, well, you know, too much forgiveness, all this forgiveness, and then what's going to keep us What's going to keep us on the right road? What's going to keep us from abusing it? And the answer is Christ in you. Well, Christ in me, but I'm dirty and wicked and evil and I want to go astray. And so what's, you know, it's going to be me sort of against Christ. No, you're in Christ and you have a new heart and a new spirit and you're one with him and you agree with him in spirit. Then people say, okay, okay, I get it. But now all I feel is pressure. I mean, you're telling me I'm new, I'm supposed to live new. As a teenager, this is what I got. I got a portion of the new covenant message. The portion that I received is that Christ lives in me and I'm in Christ. And all I knew was about identity. Well, if all you know is identity, it comes with a great deal of pressure. Uh, Here's your identity in Christ. Now you better live it out. And yet there's another aspect of the gospel, and that is life under grace. The pressure is off. You're not being measured. You're not being evaluated. You already have God's approval. God is always towards you. His face is always a smile in your direction. Even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. So I want you to see that in actuality, I talk about it being a two-sided coin, but really also you could think of it as a building. And there are four pillars of the new covenant. There's total forgiveness in this corner, and in this corner, there's life under grace, freedom from the law, and then in this corner, there's Christ in you, he is the power, he is your source, he is your everything, and then over here is who you are in Christ. So you see that whether it's forgiveness, or freedom, or Christ in you, or you in Christ, we need all four pillars of the new covenant for it to make sense. Otherwise, the truth doesn't fully set us free. So what we find about the law is that, you know, that man on the ground needed the paddles. He needed the electric charge. He needed new life. And the law could not do that for us spiritually. The Bible says that the law cannot impart life. Galatians chapter 3, it says... Is the law opposed to the promises? And the answer is, of course not, uh, because they have different agendas. I mean, uh, if a law had been given that could actually impart life, then righteousness would have been based on the law. But God knew, God knew ahead of time that the law would never give anyone life. He knew that no one could keep the law. He knew that no one could uh, be justified by the law. And again, you say, well, why... You know, this is a popular question. Why would God do this? Why would God give a law that um, 
he already knew nobody could keep. Well, remember that the way of faith is older than the law. Remember that Abraham was justified by faith. What was it? uh, Many, 430 years before Moses. If you had interviewed, go back in time and interview good old Abe. Well, you say, hey, Abe, what do you think of this Moses guy? He's going to say, Moses who? I've never heard of him. And so Abe was justified by faith long before Moses showed up on the planet. And the point is, is Moses is not renegotiating the faith deal, right? If I were to go buy a Honda Civic and I walk out of that dealership having negotiated an awesome deal with just the options I want for $17,250, and then 430 days later, 430 days later, I get a voicemail from the dealership. And they say, excuse me, uh, Mr. Farley, uh, you uh, actually, you you underpaid uh, for your car. We're going to have to have you come back into the dealership and uh, pay a little more. I'm not going to return that phone call. We're done. I paid. I signed a contract. The deal is done. And so it is with the new covenant, the new covenant is actually older than the old covenant. Do you see that? That through Abraham, the promise of the new way by faith is actually older than the old covenant. The law came long after Abraham, and the law is not a renegotiation. The law is not an addendum. And so God knew that they could not keep the law, but the law came in so that they would have consciousness of sins. The law would point them in the direction of faith. And so it is today. But there were many Jewish people that misunderstood the function of the law. What was designed to point them to faith, they actually ended up dwelling on it, obsessed with it, writing their own laws, expanding upon the law with their own rules and regulations, and they became obsessed with the mirror that was designed to show them the dirt on their face instead of turning by faith to God to be forgiven and cleansed. And so they missed the point of the law and they got fixated on it. Instead of moving on, all the law says is, hey, look at you. You've got a problem, so look over here. That's what the law does. Hey, you've got a problem. Here's 613 evidences that you have a problem and you're in need of justification by faith because it certainly can't be by performance because I remind you, look at you. You've got a problem. 613 ways you're being disobedient. So how about, hello, how about looking over here at the way of faith instead? But many people see the law doing this and they just stare at the law. And then they dress up the law, they add extra wardrobe to the law, they get fixated on the law, and the law is saying, look over there at the way of faith. Paul found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually did what? Brought death. It killed him. In fact, it showed him his death. Paul could have sang that song, I fought the law and the law won, right? That was his life story as a Pharisee. So now we look at the idea that Jesus, you know, Jesus said, I came that they might have 
life. Not a behavior improvement program. Not shouting principles at us. I came that they might have life. And so we look at the true definition of eternal life, and it's really curious, actually. You know, it's different than everlasting life. Everlasting life is this. It's life that lasts forever. Everlasting life would be good, but do you realize that we have more than everlasting life? We have something called eternal life. Now, the definition of everlasting life is life with no end. The definition of eternal life is life with no end and no beginning. Now, you had a beginning. I was born in 1972, and I had a beginning just like you did. But if the Bible says I have received eternal life, then whose life is the only life with no beginning? Christ's life. So do you see that eternal life, get this now, eternal life is not your life made longer. Eternal life is not your life made better. Eternal life is not your life in heaven someday. Eternal life is actually someone else's life. Eternal life is Christ's life. And so if you have received eternal life, you didn't just receive some sort of ticket to heaven and then here's a book you should read in the meantime and then go to that building over there and so it's a book and a building and a ticket. No, it's not a book and a building and a ticket. It's a life. It's a person. Eternal life is Christ's life. And you possess eternal life right now, meaning you possess Christ's life right now. This is why we say God is not merely here to help us. See, a helper would come alongside you and help. But Jesus Christ is not merely your helper. The Bible actually calls him your life. When Christ, who is our life, appears, we will appear with him in glory. So Jesus is our everything. He emanates from the very core of our being. He's fused with us. We are infused with his life. Christ is our life. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is this. The gift of God is a person. Jesus Christ, his life. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has Christ's life. No beginning, no end. He has crossed over from death to life. Salvation is a new location. Salvation is getting the paddles, getting divine resurrection. Salvation is being infused with Jesus. God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Do you realize that I know we hang crosses around our necks and we have people streaming down the aisles at churches across America to get forgiveness for sins. They show up on the front here and they pray for forgiveness of sins. But do you realize that we are not actually saved just by the cross of Christ? That salvation is not just forgiveness. We're not saved merely by the cross, but we are actually saved by his life. The Bible teaches us this in Romans 5. It says, when we were enemies... What did the death do? The death of Christ reconciled us. Do you know what reconcile means? It kind of has two meanings. Reconcile can mean uh, two people who were at odds with each other. They get back together. So you and the God of the universe got back together because of the blood of Jesus. It can also be an accounting term, right? When you reconcile the books. 
You've got all the accounts payable and the accounts receivable and you reconcile everything so that everything is paid correctly and accurately. Uh, Well, that too was done with your sins. The wages of sin was death. Jesus died. There's no wages left. So that was reconciled. And that's what the death of Christ did. But here it says that something else saved you. We've got crosses hanging around our necks, people coming down for forgiveness. And here this passage says something else saved you. It says having been reconciled, we shall be saved by what? By his life, not merely his death, but his life. Real salvation is possessing Jesus, the resurrection life of Jesus. We should have little empty tomb uh, symbols hanging from our chains around our necks, right? And I've got some available in my truck after this session. Not really. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? You know, what he's saying is we live because of him. We'll be saved as long as he lives. There's a scripture passage in Hebrews that says he is able to save us completely because he always lives to intercede for us. See, I used to think that I would be saved as long as I live right. Now I realize I will be saved as long as Jesus lives. See, your salvation is tied up in the length and the quality of Jesus' life, not in the quality of your living. You know, uh, years ago, Wayne Gretzky played. Of course, you know his name, and some of you, maybe you followed hockey, you know just how good he he was. Uh, My wife is from Toronto, Canada, and she tells me all about him. You know, he won in, an incredible amount of MVP awards and national championships, and he was awesome. Many, of, many people liken him to the Michael Jordan of hockey. Some say he was even more distinguished, more set apart, better. Uh, and so, you know, he wouldn't skate to where the puck is. He would skate to where the puck would be about four seconds from now. And he could anticipate this and make fools of other people on the ice because he was so naturally gifted. Now, I want you to imagine that you're getting ready to step on the ice for your first ever NHL professional hockey game and you're going to play in it. And by some miracle, you are infused with the spirit of Wayne Gretzky living in you to motivate you and animate you and inspire your every move. Now... You are confronted with a choice. At this moment, you are confronted with a choice. Am I going to skate like I've always been skating or not? In most cases, got a lot of ice skaters here, a few, anyone? Well, so we're confronted with our ineptness at that point, right? We have to be honest about our inability to cope with this situation. And so we're confronted with the possibility of skating and playing like we've, like we've always played, or allowing the very life of Wayne Gretzky to skate and play in and through us. Now you see that through this silly example, this is precisely and exactly what we've really been invited to in Jesus Christ. 
we have been infused with the spirit of Jesus Christ. Right beneath, right beneath your flesh and bones and everything that you call you, Jesus Christ lives there. This is why the early church was willing to be crucified upside down and dragged away from their families and tortured and killed. It certainly wasn't because of a book or a building they went to or a future destination someday. They were convinced that the teacher who was crucified and buried had indeed raised from the dead and was now literally residing beneath their flesh and bones And it was so amazing, it was worth dying for. And today, we have this same relationship with Jesus Christ. He is just beneath your skin. He is fused to who you are. You are one with Him. The Bible speaks of it as vine and branches, and we got to get used to being branches. I mean, being a branch doesn't sound very exotic unless you're connected to this vine who is incredibly awesome. And we get to enjoy branch life. Now the beauty of branch life is the pressure is off. You don't have to be the vine. You don't have to be Jesus. People say, what would Jesus do? You don't have to say, huh, let me thumb through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. See what Jesus would do. Then try to be Jesus. Try to be like Jesus. We don't have to say, what would Jesus do? We get to say, what is Jesus doing? Living in me right now. And so the Bible speaks of this relationship in John 14. It says, before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Get this, because I live, you also will live. Now, when I speak of these things, when I speak of Christ living in you and through you, some people get the wrong idea. They think, well, am I going to walk out of this building and end up uh, traversing across water on the surface of the water? Am I going to end up healing everyone left, right, and center? And I think that it's really important to see what Jesus is about. What is the core of what Jesus is doing in and through us? And Paul described this, you know, so that the expectations would be set. I mean, if Jesus Christ lives in me, what is the big deal? What is he really up to? And of course, Paul gives us this exaggerated scenario. He's like, imagine I could take some powers and move mountains. I could beam these mountains across. And then imagine that I had such dedication and such commitment that I would say, here, burn my body for this cause. So a martyr with dedication and commitment and powers of the age to come, able to move mountains all over the place. And he says, even if, even if I had all that and didn't have this one thing going on, it would mean nothing, it would be absurd. So the biggest thing that Christ is doing in and through us is loving people. And I hope that you have that as the expectation of what Christ is doing in us. People say, Man, without, uh, without the law, you know, how will I define sin? And without the law, how will I know what Jesus is up to? Well, let me flip it on you. Imagine if it was the law, then here's what Jesus is up to. Jesus is helping you avoid shrimp cocktail. And Jesus is helping you avoid pork sloppy joes. And Jesus is helping you avoid Saturday yard work. And Friday night emails. 
See, when we say, oh, how in the world can I know what Jesus is up to and how in the world can I define sin without the law, remember that the law defines sin in 613 ways. There's 613 definitions of sin in the law. Thank God we're freed from all that. So what is Jesus up to? Of course, we can say the fruit of the Spirit in general. And I guess I have an observation about the fruit of the Spirit. I just want to take a minute to, for us to think about that. Gentleness and uh, kindness and goodness and faithfulness and love and these sort of things. What do they all have in common? I want you to think about the possibility of a person just waking up in religion every day and saying, you know, today I'm going to work really, really hard on being gentle. And then tomorrow I'm going to work really, really hard on being patient. And then, you know, when it's all over with, I'm going to tell people, man, you know what? I worked really, really hard on being patient and it was so awesome. And now I am so patient and so humble too. And so we can see that, you know, one thing that religion will not produce is love. And one thing that the fruit of the Spirit has in common is, have you noticed that it's like soft stuff? Let me use the word soft for a minute. In order to exude gentleness and patience and kindness, guess what I have to be receiving? In other words, think about us humans as reflectors, okay? You're not a producer of anything spiritually. You and I, we're not producers. We are reflectors. We're designed to be receivers. We receive and reflect to the world. He is the light of the world. We are children of light. We are designed to reflect him. So, If you just work backwards with me for a minute, watch this now. We've got the fruit of the Spirit. It's things like gentleness and kindness and love and patience. It's a whole lot of soft stuff. Now, it's going to be really hard for me to produce this stuff if I think, you know what, God has all these rules for me. I'm kind of stressed out. His yoke is difficult. His burden is heavy. I've got this big religious demand on me. And now I'm going to go love people. And so when you think about it, number one, the fruit is of the Spirit. It's not of me. It's not the fruit of me. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Number two, it's soft stuff. Now let's take in a little bit of a computer analogy here. The whole what goes in must come out, right? So when we have a computer, the output is dictated by the input. You don't get output from a computer that contradicts the programming that went in. What goes in comes out. And so what I'm saying is, doesn't the fruit of the Spirit tell you a great deal about how the God of the universe is treating you? God is always patient towards you. God is always kind towards you. God loves you to death, literally to death. He died for you. God is crazy about you. And as I as I'm willing to just go breathe out and just soak that in, then I become a receiver. I become a reflector instead of a producer. 
I was never designed to be a producer. I was designed to be a reflector. Big difference. But in order for this to work the way God has designed it, I have to be willing to receive. And I've been told that maybe it's selfish or maybe it's prideful to be such a receiver. But I have to realize there is nothing within me that is going to generate anything. Apart from him, I can do nothing. Even when he says love others, here's the catch. Love others even as I have loved you. So what do I have to know? I have to know how much he loves me in order to love others even as he has loved me. So again, we're back to my role of reflecting, receiving, not transmitting, not producing, not generating, but being a receiver and a reflector. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Eternal life is a person, and eternal life is about knowing a person. Look at how Paul spoke about this relationship. Whatever was to my profit, you know, I had a big resume. I mean, Pharisee of Pharisees, born on the right day. My friends, by the way, my friends found me blameless. They thought I was the best law keeper they had ever seen. Now, I had this problem over here with coveting. I wanted other people's stuff. But all of that was on the inside and I kept it hidden. And my buddies found me blameless. So I had it going on, man. As far as Judaism, I had it going on. This is what Paul would have said. But whatever was to my profit, you know what? None of it means anything. I consider it loss. For the sake of Christ, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of good living. No, to the surpassing greatness of avoiding sin. No, to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Do you realize Paul has just given us the entire goal of the Christian life? The goal of the Christian life is not sin avoidance. You could be under the law and say your goal is sin avoidance. You could be a Mormon and say your goal is sin avoidance. You could be a Muslim and say your goal is sin avoidance. Do you realize that our goal is not sin avoidance? Our goal is knowing Jesus Christ. And the byproduct of that is he never leads us to sin. And so I get to know him and I'm consumed with him. And the goal is not just some sort of sin avoidance. Do you realize that was the sales pitch in the garden? The sales pitch in the garden from Satan was sin avoidance. In the day that you eat of this, you will know good from evil. Did he pitch them so that you can do evil? Was that the sales pitch? Was the sales pitch so that you can be bad? No, the sales pitch in the garden by Satan himself was in the day you eat of this, you will be like God. You will be godly. 
you will see good from evil and morality and ethics, and you will be able to choose good and become like God. Do you see that the sales pitch was religion? The sales pitch was morality and ethics. The sales pitch was good and evil, right and wrong, everything except the life of God. And today we can be suckers for the same sales pitch. Today we can think that Christianity is about good and evil and right and wrong and sin avoidance. And it's like, well, it's like, you know, we're one of us is hanging on to the good branch, you know, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There we are on the good branch, hanging on to it. We're saying, thank you, Lord, that I'm not on that evil branch. And he says, it's the wrong tree. There's another tree, the tree of life. You need to be drawing life from me. It's the wrong tree. It makes no difference whether it's the good branch or the evil branch if it's the wrong tree. And so Paul says, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a rightness, not having an okayness, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from what I do, from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God for free by faith. You are right and it's free. You are okay with God and it's free. If you are in Jesus Christ, you're off the charts, you're an 11, you're 100% good with Him and it's totally free. If He gave His very life for us on the cross, how will He not freely give us all things? Everything is free. So you know what this means? It means there's no more shopping, right? No more shopping when religion comes knocking and religion tells you you need more. Religion comes knocking and telling you, oh, it's great that you have Jesus, but now you need the spirit. Well, Romans says if you don't have the spirit of Christ, you don't belong to him. So you've either got Jesus and the spirit or you don't have Jesus or the spirit. But it's impossible to have Jesus but not have the spirit because the spirit is the Lord and the Lord is the spirit. The Bible tells us that his divine power has given us how much? Everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. How about, God? I'm back to my worship leader with the cool hair and the cool jeans and the guitar. God, we hunger and thirst for more of you, Lord. And everybody, amen. Man, that sounds good, except Jesus said the opposite. He said, if you eat of me, you'll never hunger again. If you drink of me, you'll never thirst. And we're hungering and thirsting for more of him instead of realizing I have everything I need for life and godliness. I am complete. I lack nothing. I have fullness in Christ. He has done everything he is going to do to make you one with him. You are one with him. It is over. It's finished. You're a new creation raised and seated with Christ right next to the God of the universe. God, I want to be close. God, you're sitting right next to me. In Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form 
And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority, Colossians 2. So am I just talking about a bunch of book knowledge? Man, I love the Bible. I love the Word of God. I'm a one-trick pony. Without the Bible, I don't have a message. Without the Scriptures, I'm just some guy talking about some stuff that I made up. I love the Bible, and yet I need to be acquainted with the reality that 70% of the early church was illiterate. 70% of the early church couldn't read. And they also were lucky to have one epistle, maybe two at most, and it was read aloud, and then later it was read aloud again, and then I guess it was read aloud again. And they they couldn't, 70% of them couldn't have a quiet time. They had to have a loud time because they couldn't read. And we make much of Bible study, and Bible study is great, and again, there's no gospel without the clarity that the Word of God has brought to us in print, and I'm grateful and thankful for that, and that's, that's what I study and what we've celebrated all weekend. And yet, you can see how book knowledge could really warp people. John chapter 5, it says, Jesus is speaking to these Pharisees, he says, you diligently study the Scriptures Because you think that by them you possess eternal life. But these are the scriptures that testify about me, a person. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. When I studied a physics book, it was to get to know physics. When I studied a history book, it was to get to know history. The Bible is one of those rare books. You study a book to get to know not the book, but the author. You get to know the author through the book. It's a person. Now, you're born of that person. I spoke this morning about being born again. I mentioned that born again has become a political term, right? We've become numb to it. And the scriptures are essentially giving us a spiritual x-ray machine and saying, hey, you, you're one with me. Hey, you, what does it mean that you're born of me? Jesus declares, I I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he's old? He can't crawl back into his mother's womb. I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water, that's physical birth, and then born of the spirit, that's spiritual birth. Flesh gives birth to flesh, that's physical birth. And then Spirit, capital S, gives birth to Spirit. So can you imagine waking up every day and thinking this thought, God, the Holy Spirit, gave birth to me. God, the Holy Spirit, gave birth to me. He gave me my DNA. He gave me my bloodline. He gave me my lineage. He gave me my heritage. He gave me my identity. God the Spirit gave birth to me. The year was 1886 and a man named Pemberton, he patented the secret formula for Coca-Cola. And he kept it locked in a vault inside of a, a bank. And, you know, it was kept there for many decades and nobody had a clue what the secret formula for Coca-Cola was until... 
the Atlanta Journal and Constitution, that newspaper in the city of Atlanta, they did a story on Pemberton and they had him standing at his desk. They had a picture of him, an old picture, and he was standing at his desk and he had his hand on it. And behind him there on the desk was the secret formula for Coca-Cola. And these reporters decided they would zoom in on this piece of paper and lo and behold, what was once a mystery, what was once a secret, now became public. It was revealed. The Bible says that there is a mystery. I'll finish with this. It says, Paul says, I have become its servant. God gave me this commission. He says there was a mystery. Look at this. A mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations. But now, boom, revealed. To them God has chosen to make known Among the Gentiles, the glorious riches of this mystery, this secret formula now revealed. Here it is, Christ in you. Not Christ, a long distance phone call up to heaven asking for help, but Christ in you. This morning I talked about that one foot journey from head to heart. What that's all about is living from this mystery. Living From this mystery now revealed that you can live from the very center, the very core of your being, Christ in you, Christ as your life. Not just Savior, not just Lord, but Christ as your everything. All right, well, I want to stop there. In the next session, uh, I'm going to be addressing some of your questions. Why don't we take just a minute, we'll pray and thank our God, and then we'll come back around 7.30. Father, we, uh, we thank you for... This opportunity to gather and celebrate you, Christ in us. Uh, We thank you that it's not a behavior improvement program. It's not about sin prevention. It is about Jesus. We thank you, Father, that you never lead us into sin. You never lead us into uh, sin because of your nature, because you're trustworthy, because your heart is good and always good. And, Father, we thank you for, for bringing us online with you, for making us one with you for uniting us with Christ. We thank you for this mystery that it's no longer a secret, that it's revealed. And we ask, Father, that you would grow us up in it, in the knowledge of Jesus in us, that just beneath our flesh and bones and everything that we call us, there you literally dwell. We thank you for your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we'll take about an eight or ten minute break and then we'll come back for your questions.